My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here, and I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Matthew 7 as we uh, kind of enter the final stretch of the Sermon on the Mount. As most of you know, my family and I lived in the Boston suburbs for about eight years before we came to Cedar Rapids. And clear back in the 1980s, uh, the city of Boston was plagued with a chronic traffic problem. Now, we don't know anything about that in Cedar Rapids. We actually have a fifth season of the year because of all of the time we save by not being stuck in traffic, right? Uh, But if you've ever been to Boston, you might actually begin to understand the logic of our city slogan. Uh, Back in the 80s in particular, there were somewhere around 200,000 vehicles going in and out of the city each day on roads and highways that were designed to accommodate 75,000 cars. And uh, the, the result was about 10 hours of congestion every single day on the roads going in and out of the city. It was untenable. And so they came up with a solution. It got so bad, they're like, we have to do something. They came up with a solution, this major construction project that involved replacing a, an elevated interstate that went over the city and instead digging a tunnel so that it could go underneath the city, digging a tunnel under a city that's been there almost 400 years, and then digging another tunnel for another underground interstate that would go underneath the the bay, underneath the Boston Harbor, out to the airport, and then several other projects and bridges, all of which came to be known as the Big Dig. It was the Big Dig. And it was really, it was honestly quite amazing uh, to be, you know, we, when we lived there, we drove on these roads regularly and to think like somehow they tunneled underneath this skyscraper and it's still standing and those kinds of things. Uh, and, and nowadays those roads support about 400,000 cars in and out. But if you ask a Bostonian uh, about the story of the big dig, you often get uh, a subtle sense uh, somewhere between embarrassment and exasperation as they recount the story. Because despite the incredible improvement to the flow of traffic, uh, it's also one of the worst examples of underestimation in modern history. So construction began in 1991 and was originally scheduled to be completed in 1998 at an estimated cost of $2.8 billion. It was actually completed in 2007 at a cost of over $8 billion, which by the time the interest is done being paid in 2038 will land somewhere closer to $22 billion. So 10 years past schedule and nearly 10 times the estimated cost. Uh, needless to say, many people lost their jobs over that. Uh, there were several lawsuits, a few settlements, a f- some criminal prosecutions, all because a few people failed to appreciate the significance, the gravity of what they were about to undertake. The true significance of the project, which was a costly mistake for everybody involved. Well, as we come to the final stretch of the Sermon on the Mount, this is a mistake Jesus does not want us to make. To fail to appreciate the gravity to underestimate the significance of what it means to walk in the way of Jesus as part of the kingdom that he is building. And, he, and, and it's not uh, 
He's not worried as much about underestimating the significance of time and money and so on. But what, what he's talking about here is life and eternity. That's what's at stake before us. As he says here, there is a narrow gate that leads to life, and there's a wide gate that leads to judgment. There are false prophets who will be cut down and burned. Not everyone who claims Jesus will be welcomed into his kingdom. Some will be shut out. There are those whose lives will end with a colossal, disastrous fall. That's a sobering note to complete and conclude his sermon. But it's one that reminds us that what we've been doing the last few months in pouring over the Sermon on the Mount has not been a waste of time. It's not been a waste of time. It is literally a matter of life and death. So we cannot allow ourselves to underestimate the significance of what Christ has been revealing to us and calling us to. The way of Jesus is neither easy nor common, but it's the better way to live, and it's the only way home. That's what we're going to see here. And so again, we're, we're now in the final stretch of his sermon uh, in many ways, verse 12 that we landed on last week, the, the golden rule, uh, summarizes all of the kingdom virtues that we've seen up to this point. Everything Jesus has been identifying and then applying to life can be captured in verse 12. So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the way of righteousness before God. And so he's summarized those kingdom virtues. And now verse 13 signals kind of that final turn uh, into the, the chapter that with the rest of the verses forming the straightaway to the finish line. And there are four markers along this final straightaway, four, four sections here in 13 to 27, each of which is marked by a pair of some sort that illustrates the eternal significance of the kingdom. So in verses uh, 13 and 14, you have two paths or roads. In verses 15 to 20, you have two trees. In 21 to 23, you have two claims. And then in 24 to 27, you have two houses. Again, all of these pairs, each of them creating a contrast to help us understand what's at stake in finishing well, in following the way of Jesus and his kingdom. And we're going to look at the first three sets of pairs this morning. We'll come back next week and, and look at verses 24 to 27 as we kind of wrap up and summarize the whole Sermon on the Mount. But we'll start with verses uh, 13 and 14, the picture of two paths, choosing what is easy versus choosing what is right. Choosing what is easy versus choosing what is right. And, and the picture is, is pretty simple. Uh, you can imagine two different roads. Like one of them is nice and wide and smooth and, and, and well-built, right? It's broad. It pours into this wide-open gate. It's crowded. It's well-traveled. It's happening. And then there's this second road, which is narrow and perhaps rough, maybe even looks a little bit dangerous. It leads to this small little gate that not many people could fit through at a time. So 
So two different roads with two different gates, but what truly distinguishes them, much more than their size and their volume, is the destination. One of them leads to life. The other leads to judgment. But it's not the one we would expect. I think that's the surprise of the picture there. We would expect that it's the broad, well-traveled road. That's the one that's going to lead to life, the one everybody seems to be on, right? When in fact, it's the narrow, less-traveled road that is the way of Jesus. So the picture's simple. The implication, however, is deeply profound. Not only in what it says about the exclusivity of Christ, but also in what it says about the impulses of our own hearts. And so I want to think first about the exclusivity of Christ. This is a, honestly, this is a pretty controversial picture. The idea, the, the very clear statement here that Jesus is the way to God and there is no other. Right? There's not many ways to God, and you can kind of pick whichever path you want. There are not many gates. There's one gate, and his name is Jesus. That idea will get you into trouble today. Right? That's not a widely accepted, uh, that sounds narrow-minded, bigoted, arrogant, and so on. How can you, you know, there, there can't just be one religion. And who, do, who are you to think that you found the one religion? One true religion. Well, first of all, we're not the ones saying it. Right? Christian, Christians didn't come up with this. This is what Jesus is saying here. He's the one speaking. He's the one saying, there's one gate and I'm it. He says it here. He says it again in John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we're not making this up. This is what Jesus himself says, right? And then second, we're not the ones who found it. We're not the ones who found it. That's the beauty of Christianity. It's not that this is something we figure out on our own. We were the ones who were found by him. He's the one who does the seeking, the searching, the saving. Not us. It's not like, uh, you know, Christianity, this narrow gate, and we're out there like Indiana Jones discovering something nobody else has ever found before, and so, you know, how cool are we? Salvation is by grace through faith. We are sinners, and He's the one who saves us. Jesus Himself, He's the gate. He's the gate. As He says in John 10, verse 9, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. And Jesus gave his life to be that gate. That, that's something that we need to understand, especially if, if I'm not a Christian and I'm kind of sitting here looking in, thinking this all sounds really narrow-minded and really judgy, you know, that, that Jesus could be the only one, that that's what his followers think and so on. What we need to understand is what Christ was willing to do in order to be that way to God, the only way to God. Not only is he the door through which the sheep enter, he's also the good shepherd who laid his life down for the sheep. That there might be a way. He's the only one who paid the entry fee for us with his own life. Giving us his life of righteousness for our life of sin, covering our sins 
with his blood. He is the Prince of Peace who made peace with God through the blood of the cross. And so to say that Jesus is just one way to God among many, uh, not only are you disagreeing with Jesus, you are actually despising what he's done to open that way for you, what it cost him. It makes the cross unnecessary. In fact, it makes it rather ugly, rather than being the greatest act of love in human history. And so, yes, Christianity is exclusive. Jesus is the way, not a way, the way. As all religions are ultimately exclusive, all truth claims are exclusive in some way, even the ones that insist that all religions are really equal, that's a very exclusive claim about what you're allowed to believe, right? So everything is ultimately exclusive. But as Tim Keller reminds us, the gospel is an exclusive truth, but it's the most inclusive exclusive truth that there is because everyone is welcome to Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, where you're from, where you live, where you're born. It doesn't matter what's been done to you. It doesn't matter the color of your skin, the language you speak, male, female, slave or free, all are invited to find life in Jesus. So the picture says something about the exclusivity of Christ. But just as important, it also reveals something about the impulses of our hearts. Even knowing that the narrow way is the only way, there's still a massive temptation to take the broad road instead to do what is easy and common rather than doing what is true and what is right. And there are all sorts of reasons for that, the, the, the impulse of our heart that leads us to be fascinated with the wide road. Sometimes it's laziness. You know, following Jesus is hard. It takes self-discipline and perseverance, and I don't know if I want to do that, right? Uh, sometimes, very often, it's the fear of missing out. If I say yes to Jesus, that means I'm going to have to say no to some things that I really kind of want to try or do, and I I don't know if he's worth it. Very often, it's a desire to be accepted, uh, to be recognized, included uh, by some group that we admire, right? I don't don't want to be found on the wrong side of history or, or or, or whatever. We want to be recognized as part of that group, even if they happen to be on the wide road. So attractive is the wide road uh, that those who choose it over the narrow road are now often celebrated for their so-called deconversion stories or deconstructing their faith. So those who, people who formerly identified with the narrow road, with, with Christianity, now uh, renouncing that and saying, I'm on the broad road and, and, and uh, renouncing their faith. It's, it's so common that it's become its own genre now. The Instagram deconversion announcement. I don't know if you've encountered this, but uh, Brett McCracken describes it like this. A, a former evangelical author, pastor, CCM star, or simply raised in the church 20-something posts a, a self-portrait looking ponderous and solemn, yet free, 
followed by a lengthy narrative involving some combination of words such as evolving, journey, fear, discovery, honesty, authentic, free, hopeful. And, and that's not to say that, that the Christian faith does not, that we won't encounter hard, sometimes even agonizing questions in our faith. Nor is it to say that sometimes the Christianity we think we're shedding was actually just a legalistic knockoff of the real thing. It's simply to point out that while deconversion is branded as heroic and countercultural, it's really quite common and so much easier than keeping the faith. It's wide road material choosing what is easy instead of choosing what is true and right. As McCracken explains, the far more radical, the truly countercultural choice isn't to abandon the Christian faith because it's maddening, difficult, and out of step with the spirit of the age. The radical choice is to keep the faith. And you just Consider all the ways that the Christian faith subverts the norms of Christian culture of, of modern Western culture. If you want to be countercultural, think about how counter Christianity is to the spirit of the age. In a believe in yourself world, this is still McCracken. In a believe in yourself world, Christianity calls you to deny yourself and take up your cross. I mean, that goes against everything that we're told to do, right? In a you-do-you world that emphasizes expressive individualism, authenticity, and nonconformity, Christianity is about conforming to the likeness of Christ and becoming an imitator of God. In a consumerist and greedy culture, Christianity calls you to costly generosity and a willingness to give up material possessions. In a world that privileges power, winning, and best life, now success, Christianity calls you to value weakness. In a partisan world in which thinking the worst of your enemies and trying to own them on social media is a way of life, Christianity calls you to the radical challenge of loving them instead. In a world that has normalized the discarding of unborn lives and the dehumanizing of others through racism, sexism, xenophobia, Christianity insists that all human beings bear the image of God and are worthy of dignity and protection. You want to be countercultural. The Christian faith is unlike what this world wants, what this world values. The way of Jesus is it's not easy and it's not common, but it is the better way to live and the only way home. That's the first warning, these two paths. The second warning that Jesus gives here uh, that helps us appreciate the significance, the eternal significance of what he's been talking about uh, comes in verses 15 to 20. It's the picture of two trees following influencers versus examining fruit. Two trees, following influencers versus examining fruit. And I use the word influencer there in kind of a, a, a tongue-in-cheek uh, way. It's, 
It's a, a, a word that perhaps is new to some of us. It's all the rage today to be an influencer on social media or whatever. I actually got called an influencer once. I got a, a book in the mail, a complimentary book from a publisher one time, and it said something on the label like about influencer. I took a picture of that thing. That was a big day for me, right? Uh, but in its typical sense, which has nothing to do with me, um, it refers to celebrities, like Instagram personalities, social media superstars, people whose popularity has won them a sense of public authority on everything from medical decisions to laundry detergent, right? Influencers. And in some ways, the ancient world wasn't that different. It wasn't that different. We always look to people whom we admire for guidance. It's just what we do, right? And there were some in the, in the ancient world, and, and today as well, some people are really good at drumming up that admiration for themselves, like at, at building a platform, at drawing a crowd, at selling themselves. And when they do that in the name of God, when they sell themselves in the name of God, the Bible has a word for that. It's called false prophet, Right? The false prophets in Scripture was someone who claimed to speak for God, but doesn't actually. And so they're going to say whatever it is you want to hear in order to win your admiration, to win your loyalty, to win your approval, sometimes even your money. They are, as Jesus describes them, ravenous wolves. They prey on the people they preach to. Like Balaam in Numbers 22 or those who like to tickle ears in 2 Timothy 4. And, and part of what makes them so dangerous is that they look so safe. Right? Jesus says they come to you in sheep's clothing. They look like Christians. They sound like Christians. But they're only here to use Christians. The kingdom they're building is not that of Jesus, but their own or someone else's, and you are a means to their end. Left unchecked, they threaten to distract and lead us off the narrow road and away from Christ. And, and so, how do we know, as we're thinking about how important it is to follow Jesus, to stay true to Christ, and yet we're surrounded by so many different voices telling us, what God says or thinks about this, that, and the other. And the voices don't always agree, right? The podcasts, the sermon downloads, the conferences, the pundits. How do we know who to listen to? Well, rather than following our preferred influencer, we need to examine their fruit. We need to examine the fruit. That's the picture that Jesus gives us here, of these two different trees, one of which produces good fruit, and the other produces bad fruit, sick, unhealthy. And it's the nature and quality of the fruit that reveals the true nature and quality of the tree that it comes from. That's his illustration. And so, if, it, if the tree is sick, it's going to produce diseased fruit. If the fruit is healthy, you can trust that the tree it came from is healthy. And you apply that illustration to teachers and influencers, as Jesus says. He says twice here, you will recognize them by their fruits. You will recognize them by their fruits. 
And so what kind of fruit are we looking for? Well, very simply put, we're looking for the virtues of the kingdom. We're looking for everything Jesus has been talking about through the Sermon on the Mount so far. Clear back to the Beatitudes. Poverty of spirit, meekness, mercy, purity of heart. That's what we're looking for. Or you might think of it in terms of the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5. Those character traits that, that the redemption that we have in Christ produces through the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. In short, we're looking for the fruit of Christ's likeness. The fruit of Christ's likeness. Does this person I'm listening to, do they look like Jesus? Do they live like him? Does the podcast I'm listening to sound like Jesus? Is it, does that teaching accord with God's word? Does this pundit or this personality help me to look and live more and more like Jesus? Is the result of their teaching a life that resembles our Lord? Do they stir up in me love and humility and faith and mercy, and a hunger for righteousness? Or does it stir up anger, and anxiety, and hostility, selfishness, fear, suspicion, bitterness, dread? So what's it producing? And just as important, do I have to depend on Jesus in order to live or look that way? Is it does their teaching flow from the power of the gospel or replace it with some technique? Does it magnify Christ or replace him with some other priority? So sick trees often traffic in diversions and shortcuts, right? Diversions and shortcuts. The glory of Christ is eclipsed with the glory of something else. Power, politics, personal agendas, power, success, those are diversions, right? There's a, we're, we've gone off course and we're going to a different end now. Or shortcuts. The power of Christ is subverted by some technique, a program, a method, a, a, a download this thing and do this agenda, personal resolve, some shortcut. In short, it's the kind of Christianity that doesn't really look like Jesus and doesn't really need Jesus. That's unhealthy fruit. If the product of what you're selling or what you're listening to doesn't look like Jesus and doesn't require Jesus, it's, it's unhealthy fruit. And what happens to the kind of Christianity, to that kind of Christianity and to those who promote it? Well, verse 19 Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It doesn't end well. So if we're going to stick to the way of Jesus, we need to examine the fruit of those who claim to speak for him. Lest we fall under the influence of false guides. So if it doesn't taste like Jesus, spit it out. If it doesn't taste like Jesus, spit it out and move on. Because there will come a day when we all stand before his throne. There will come a day 
And we want to be able to stand with confidence before his throne on that day. And that brings us to the last picture that we're going to consider this morning, verses 21 to 23. Two claims, presuming upon success versus prioritizing obedience. Presuming upon success versus prioritizing obedience. I mean, this last picture, it is as, as sobering as it is remarkable. Not only is it possible to look and sound like a Christian but actually be a wolf, it's possible to do the work of the kingdom but not actually know the king. That's sobering, right? And so in verse 21, Jesus takes us here forward to the day of judgment, to the day when, when all of the world will stand before his throne and give an account. And he tells us plainly that not everyone who claims allegiance to him will actually be welcomed in. And <laughs> so for those of us who, who struggle with doubt or guilt, um, those of us who grew up in a performance-based version of Christianity where we always felt like I have to be good enough or I'm not going to, the Lord's not going to love me, um, this is a terrifying passage, right? It just feels so heavy. How do I know whether I'm going to have that confidence? If, you know, I haven't cast out any demons yet, and these guys did that, and they didn't get in? What, what, what am I supposed to think? Well, let's, let's listen carefully to what Jesus is saying here. We find two claims in these verses. The first is the one who presumes upon their success. They presume upon their success. Verse 22, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Remarkable claim, especially considering verse 23, then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so, I mean, you wonder, were, were the works that they did for God's kingdom true? Were they real? Were they faking it and then they got caught? Like what, how do, you, how do you do these kinds of things for God? But then, and honestly, I, I'm not sure if they were real or fake. They, they seem real enough. These are the kinds of things that, that followers of Christ do in the Gospels, right? What we do know is that their kingdom work gave them a false confidence. Their busyness for Jesus gave them a false confidence before Jesus. They presumed upon their service and their success, but they didn't actually know the king. They didn't actually have a relationship with Christ. And the sad reality is that there are a lot of people in every age who spend their lives attending church, serving, doing good things, but who have never renounced their sin and placed their faith in Christ. They've never been truly converted. Jesus has always been for them a means to some other end. And they will be devastated in that day. Similarly, there's a growing generation of people who are excited about the work of the kingdom. The mercy, the justice, the, the love revealed in these pages, but uninterested in submitting to the king. One of the saddest parts of the whole deconstruction 
trend is, is the thought that, well, now that I've shed traditional Christianity and its moral straitjacket and its theological primitiveness, now I'm finally ready to be me and do the work of the kingdom. Justice, mercy, peace. And all of those are good things that we're called to do in Jesus' name. Ironically, many will look to this very sermon for their inspiration to do those things. But they miss the conclusion. Doing the work of the kingdom doesn't matter if you don't know the king. If you don't obey the king. Lord, Lord, did we not post many comments in your name and serve meals in your name and perform many acts of service in your name? If we do not know the king, our quote-unquote kingdom work is in fact lawlessness. Because what we're doing is we're replacing his kingdom with something else. We're serving the end of some other kingdom. There is no kingdom work without a relationship with the king. Without faith, obedience, trust. And, and so that's the false confidence. It's a sobering picture. What's the, what's the true confidence look like? What's the contrast? Well, if presuming upon my success in all that I might accomplish for Jesus is false confidence. The second claim is different. It doesn't presume upon success, but it prioritizes obedience. It prioritizes obedience. Verse 21 again, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Obedience to Christ is a means of confidence before Christ. Which sounds a little weird for some of us, right? Especially if you struggle with sin, like most normal people. This sounds kind of the opposite. When I, when I think of my week, I don't have a whole lot of confidence, right, in, in all of the ways that I drop the ball before the Lord. If you deal with doubt or insecurity or failure or performance-based tendencies, all of that sounds a little too much like legalism. And so is Jesus basing our acceptance into his kingdom on our obedience? I mean, that's a question we're forced to ask when we read those verses. And just to put you at ease, the answer is no. No, he is not basing our acceptance before him on our obedience to him. Salvation is still by grace through faith, just like Ephesians 2 and 8, 9, 2, 8 and 9 told us. But don't forget verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so obedience is not the basis of our relationship with Christ. Christ's obedience, that's the basis of our relationship with Christ and our union with him through faith. So obedience is, our obedience is not the basis of our relationship with Christ, but it is the essence of our relationship with Christ. It is the evidence of it. It's what it looks like to know him. To walk with him. A church that doesn't look like Jesus isn't really a church. 
a Christian who doesn't follow Jesus isn't really a Christian. And so the bottom line is that those who belong to the kingdom resemble the king. Those who belong to the kingdom resemble the king. They display the kingdom virtues, that family portrait. You can see I, there's, there's definitely a relationship here. I can tell these people look like part of that family. They walk in the surprising way of Jesus because they've been changed by Jesus. The confidence that we have from our obedience is not in ourselves. It can't be. Otherwise, the Sermon on the Mount makes no sense. Remember where the whole thing started. The very first kingdom virtue back in chapter 5. Poverty of self. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are not spiritual heavyweights, who do not have it together, who are a hot mess and, and, and don't know what to do or how to get there. They are spiritually bankrupt, left to themselves. They have nothing. Those are the kinds of people to whom the kingdom belongs. And so, so I can't take credit for any of that, Right? That's where all of our kingdom virtues and our kingdom living comes from, a poverty of self that allows me to be rich in Jesus. And so any confidence from my obedience, it's simply the joyful recognition that God has been at work in me. Like, I can see he's changed me. I'm actually different. Look at this. I want to follow him. Yes, I still mess up. No question. But, but rather than sin being something I delight in and pursue, it's a burden I bear and long to shed. I don't like it. I don't want it anymore. And by God's grace, I can see that I'm making progress. There's light. You know, the light I shine is by no means perfect. And it's not going to be perfect, the sight of heaven. But there's light. There's real light there because Jesus is there. And because Jesus is there as my hope and my security and my power and my satisfaction, my Savior, I have confidence to stand before Him because I'm robed in His righteousness, His righteous work for me, that by His Spirit produces righteous living in me. That's our confidence. It is all of Christ. And we'll talk more about obedience next week when we, we get to verses 24 to 27 and kind of wrap up and, and summarize the whole Sermon on the Mount. But as we conclude this morning, I want you to take heart. Take heart. Be encouraged. The way of Jesus is not easy. It is a narrow and difficult road filled with opposition and surrounded with distractions. Nor is it common. There are many people that you love and respect who will be on the wide road begging you to come with them. But it is the better way to live. It's the better way to live. A life redeemed by the Savior. No longer stuck in guilt and sin and shame, but forgiven and set free adopted by our God and creator and, and sent by him to reflect his kingdom world to those around us. 
those kingdom virtues, to display the beauty of Jesus to others. That is such a better way to live. And it is the only way home. For there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Don't underestimate the significance of what's at stake. And don't underestimate the unparalleled joy and privilege and glory of being known by Christ and knowing Him. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, may we not lose sight of the absolute incredible gift that we have in Jesus. Lord, we confess we are so often distracted. We are so often dismayed. There's so much in this world around us that tells us to take the easy way instead of the right way. There's so many voices that, that vie for our affection and loyalty. There's so many ways we're tempted to presume upon ourselves rather than trust and follow you. Lord, in all these things, keep our eyes on Jesus. There is no greater gift, no greater hope. There is no other life than what he provides. Lord, may we hold fast to him. In Jesus' name.